Welcome to Social Capital Expert, a show where we discover the value of social capital and how cultivating strategic relationships is critical to our success. In each episode, your host, Sarah Francis McDaniel, will explore the stories of fascinating people from all over the world to better understand how their ability to build relationships has led to their success. We will uncover tips, tricks, and practical ways that you too can become a social capital expert. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm very excited about this week's guest, Mr. Matt Joblin. Matt, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So, you know, you have a ton going on, and I can't wait to get into some of what you have going on right now, but will you just sort of give us some background? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'll, I'll try and do the short version of that. Uh, so I grew up in a small town called Dartmouth, Massachusetts, right outside the Cape. And um, I grew up in a factory, like crazy all union factory uh, for textiles. So my family's in the textile business, still is. And um, your first job is janitor there. And I, I you know, don't want to tell you the stories of what happened when all the union employees found out that the 12 year old boss's son was the janitor. Um, but every single time I had a break or a summer or something, you know, I got dropped off. I had to punch the time clock like everyone else. My dad taught me a couple of great lessons. One was um, I had to work an hour earlier and an hour later than everyone. So I did 10 hours. It's like a 14 year old where everyone else had eight and I didn't get the breaks and I had to eat like my sandwich on whatever machine I was working on. And the whole thing was, um, you know, just to, to earn respect from the people there because I was the boss's son. But there was a story of some things that when I was janitor, some things were happening and I was like, this is not fair. I remember going in my dad's office saying, hey, this isn't fair. You know, I shouldn't have to do this. And he was right. Yeah, you're right. You shouldn't. And I was like, wait, what, what, what's coming now? He's like, but if you don't do it, you will never work here again in your entire life. And I knew with him that when there was a line, there was a line. So that taught me really just like work ethic. So I did that my whole life. And it was my passion to go into that business. So um, I ended up going to school in Boston. And then when I graduated, uh, moved to LA. Um, and I just, no, no job, nowhere to live in LA. Um, ended up getting a job at UBS in Beverly Hills doing wealth management. I just needed to, to pay my rent at the time. Didn't, wasn't passionate about it, but learned a tremendous amount. And then, you know, the first, the first step of kind of making, you know, the importance of relationships was um, that the, the winter of my senior year of college, my family were, were in the Caribbean and I met two people uh, on, on the beach at our hotel and just like talked to them every day. And one of them was the guy who got me the job at UBS. Uh, and the second one was the guy I ended up working for right after that for five years in real estate where I got my start. So I was at UBS. I knew I didn't want to do it. Started finding real estate deals, sending it to this guy in New York that I met in the Caribbean. He finally hired me. We did our first deal together. He honored everything on a handshake, which was pretty amazing. Did our first deal. Um, and then five years later, I moved to Denver. So this is 2010 now. And at the time, I always knew I wanted to own my own business. So I um, started BMC and it's been almost 10 years now, which is just crazy to think that. And, and here we are today. So it's been, uh, it's been an incredible journey and I feel extraordinarily grateful for that journey and all the ups and downs and lessons learned and, and failures. So um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been really interesting, but my, my dream was to go into my family business and my dad said, hey, you gotta go work for someone else for a year or two. And I remember, after being at UBS, I called him. I said, hey, I'm ready to come home and work for you. 
And he was like, look, I thought about it. And he goes, Here, here's the problem, Matt. He said, our goals and objectives are completely different. Our time horizons are completely different. He was in his 60s. I was young 20s. He said, our tolerance for risk is completely different. He goes, I want to make, I want to take zero risk. He goes, you should go crazy with risk. You have nothing to lose. And he said, you know, this is not an entrepreneurial job. And every day I talk to you, there's something entrepreneurial going on in your life. He's like, I feel like if you came here, it would ruin our relationship because you can't have a successful partnership when you're not aligned on those three key things, time horizon, goals and objectives, and tolerance for risk. And he said, I feel like you're going to kill all the union guys. You're going to go fucking crazy here um, because it's not entrepreneurial. This is a managerial type job. So it's tough to swallow at the time because that was my dream my entire life. Um, but it was also the greatest gift he ever gave me. And, you know, I knew I had to go set off on my own and just figure it out. Uh, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing. I didn't know that about you. Um, you know, you made a comment at kind of when you were talking about the family business, that that was really your passion. So what was it the like family kind of continuing on your family business or was it the textiles? What was the passion piece? Well, that, that's actually a great question. I, I think it was um, a couple of different things. One was the fact that it was our family business in our town. Um, number two was the business prints um, a majority of the backpacks, hats, tents, parachutes, uh, uniforms, tents for the U.S. military. And okay. so it was truly providing an amazing service um, to the United States. And I was really passionate about that and thought that was the greatest thing in the world that we played a role in um, in in helping the military and the safety of our troops and so that was a part of it um, the, the third thing was there was a sense of pride where in the 80s there were so many textile factories and businesses in the US and in the town that the factory was in next to the town I grew up in so it's called New Bedford Mass there, there were you know a hundred different factories and and we were truly one of the last ones standing. And I didn't realize how big that was until I was in college in a liberal arts class. And it was some, we were doing something in history and somehow the teacher found out that that was my background. And, and she was like, you realize like your family, cause my grandfather started it in like right after the great depression and it's been in our family for however long. And she, and this teacher said, I mean, do you realize like you're one of the last like textile manufacturing families left in the U S and it's true. There's only a couple like, like left that made it wow. through the eighties and nineties cause everything went overseas for the most part. Um, so there, there was real passion and pride in carrying that on. And then I genuinely love like these machines were so big in what they did. And there was just this awe of these machines and the process that really um, I loved. And Frank, and the other thing too was like my dad had an okay relationship with the union, but they strike every five years. Where like my dad would have to meet the police to get escorted in every day. And we would get like security at our house back in the day uh, when, these, when these like 15 week strike happens. And I was convinced that AI could break the union through building relationships. And I worked so hard at building relationships with all like the ground floor workers there. Um, and I, and I did, and I, there was part of me that was like, I'm going to make this relationship so much better and build the culture here. Um, and that, so th those couple of things really just had in the challenge of that continuing it on. Um, I was just fired up and so excited about it. And by the way, I didn't know anything else either. Right. Every single you know, time I had free time, that was what I did. And it became, you know, part of my life, obviously. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That makes a lot more sense. Um, thank you for sharing. That's interesting about just even the patriotic 
kind of piece of it all and and how you support the country from that perspective is cool you know there there's a lot of similarities even as you talk though about how those were the passionate and even including the relationship things that i feel like you've sort of found in where you are today um with sort of the the community that you've built in cherry creek and the relationships and the social capital i mean you have more social capital than uh, most people have in a pinky I, I know, but it, it comes from, I think it comes from these things that you were talking about that you were passionate about even when you were a child in your, in your family's factories. And, um, and so when you made that journey from uh, the East Coast to the West Coast and you kind of moved into that life, what, tell us more. I mean, how did you sort of start to acclimate? Was there a transition period? What was that like? Well, I think when you're 21, first of all, when I moved to LA, I thought I was going to be moving back to Boston within a year or two to get back in the family business. So I was like, if, if I'm just going to be a waiter, I just wanted to cover rent and have some money to buy beer. It's honestly all I want and have fun with my friends and go to the beach and play on a lacrosse team out there. That was really it. So there was no big aspirations out there. Um, so I was just there to have fun. I, I think my, my brother's in a similar situation where and it's hard to, I don't, I don't know why, but we've both really been able to always build relationships. And by the way, he actually blows me out of the water with his relationships. I mean, I mean, he, he's on another level. It's, it's, it's incredible. Maybe we should have him on the show too. hundred percent. He's two years younger than me and he's way more impressive. It's, he, he's unbelievable. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it, um, I've just, I've, I've always valued a connection with people and been interested in people's stories. So it wasn't like this disingenuous kind of go to a networking event and want to meet you because I wanted something from you. Frankly, when I worked at UBS, I fucking hated that part of the business. They would be like, you have to go to this event and network. I was like, oh, it is so, what, what they were trying to make us do was in my mind, like it was just so inauthentic or unauthentic um, that I, it just wasn't me. And I was just there because I, for two years because I told the guy, I was the youngest person they'd hired maybe ever in that office. And I, I told him, I said, I'll do this for at least two years. And so I wanted to honor my commitment, but I wasn't passionate about it, but I've always had this just genuine interest in people and their stories. And when you think about like the belief system of someone, the belief system starts forming at age two and their journeys, you know, usually form that belief system of who they are today and how they act and behave and what they do. So you know, just understanding like what people's journey has been and what they've been through. It, it's always been a, a genuine fascination of mine. And when you ask those questions, you get to know them that just like, and you don't want something from them that builds, that's what builds relationships. Right. Yeah. And so we've just been really lucky that um, we're able to build, you know, relationships. And so, and it's, and um, it, I, I view it as a gift. Like I feel super lucky that I have that and I, I don't, it's not like something I've worked on or it's a craft. It's just, you know, I, I genuinely have an interest and care about human beings and their well-being and, and their stories. And that, that's been helpful in, in bridging those, those relationships for me. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting point. Do you think that people who aren't maybe just innately good at building relationships can be taught or can learn? I, it's hard for me to answer because... Well, the answer is I don't know, right? Because <laughs> I can't put myself in those shoes, right? Um, I think that people have this perspective and they view things a certain way and everyone has their own lens. Like you could literally look at a situation and I could look at it and we could interpret it in two different ways, right? And so what drives that again is like the belief system, where you came from. So 
I just feel that people value relationships in a different way. And as yeah. you know, there's EQ and there's IQ. There are people that are so smart. I mean, like 10X as smart as me, but they don't kind of pick up on certain social cues. Um, and I think that's really hard to teach. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, so, so I don't know. I don't know. I think that's, that's a tough one for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, you're right on the, the social cues and picking up some of that. I mean, that is hard. I have a brother who has um, Asperger's and he, it's just, it's a challenge in every moment for him to pick up those cues. And so I think in those regards, um, definitely uh, there's, there's that. But, uh, you know, you've said a couple of things that I just think are things that we can sort of be more aware of maybe sure. that will help us be able to connect with other people and one of those is just authentic you know and even if that is that you're not usually a good relationship maker or connector sure. but if you can be authentic in that um you know that might be a good way but you yeah, you've I, also oh what was that yeah no i actually you, you you trigger something in my mind that maybe goes back to answer that question i, I think the way that you could become more effective in building relationships is your awareness of your own bullshit, right? We all have blinders on all of us in different ways. Yeah. And we're unaware of certain behaviors because we've been doing this all and it becomes normal. You don't realize it's like, well, that's kind of weird or except no, weird is the wrong word. Uh, that, that's, you know, maybe I wouldn't think that way. And I think that the more that you can work on your own awareness of your kind of deep issues, um, I think that helps. I think the second thing too is the, the way that I think, I think the most important um, asset of a leader is vulnerability. If you want to get people to follow you, I think being vulnerable is the single most important thing because it just puts you on their level and shows that you're not like this person they're looking up to as the CEO or COO. So I feel like if you work on your awareness and you're vulnerable and you're authentic, I think those things in itself will build true relationships, not trying to go out there and you know ask 10 questions that you created the night before to try and build a relationship to get people taught. I think it needs to come from this authentic place. And I think people like you will like you more when you're just like your weird self. I think everyone's a weirdo. I think I'm a weirdo. I mean, how do you define that, right? There's no, yeah. there's no standard for normalcy, right? So just, I, I feel like I appreciate people who are just, completely themselves and not trying and vulnerable and share their failures and, and weaknesses and, and then are aware of kind of their crap. And that's like, those are like the most fun conversations and the people that I've become most endeared to and that I want to, you know, uh, get to know even better. Not someone who's like, you know, Mr. Fancy developer who, you know, appears to make all this money and lives this great life. And I mean, that's just like, who cares, right? And, and it's a service conversation. Oh, how are you doing? Great. I'm doing great. And we did this and that. It's like, oh, okay. That's not really that interesting, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's just that owning our own stuff and then being, we've, we've talked a little bit about even emotional intelligence is such a, this is where the world is going. This old way of doing things where everything was like kind of fake. Um, it doesn't seem to be the way that we do it anymore. And with social media and all the stuff, you know, there is an element of perfection, but there's also an element of authenticity and vulnerability that can be um, exhibited by people that maybe it didn't used to be able to be. Totally, but let's talk about social media for a second. And I okay. was talking to, I work with a leadership coach out of Calgary and we we're just having a, a conversation about it. And if you think about all these like Instagram people, right? Um, that are influencers and have all these followers. Do you realize how exhausting it might be to be as fake as they are? 
They're crafting a story on Instagram, okay? That is 100% not authentic. Very rarely is someone truly authentic. There's a few out there, but most of them. And I think about even like these, some of these like YouTube stars and what they have to go through to create this content. And, and, and they're basically putting on an act to be someone they're not. I mean, you talk about, you know, sucking the soul out of you. That's not a sustainable business. This whole influencer YouTube star thing where people are being someone else will not, I mean, it's gonna go on for a little bit longer, but it, it is the opposite of being authentic and vulnerable. And I just think about having to constantly post content, how exhausting that might be. And it's all, it's all a big charade, right? To get followers and then hopefully, you know, figure a way to monetize that. And um, yeah, that, that's, if, even if you were doing that like human to human, like you and I talking and I was putting on the act all the time, think about how exhausting that would be not being yourself. Absolutely. And the vulnerability sort of helps keep us from that place. I feel like vulnerability can kind of help with humility and um, help us kind of stay in that, in that vein of, of authenticity. Totally agree with you. And by the way, it's like, you know, when you meet someone who's just like themselves and, and grounded versus like puffing themselves up and puffing, like, I've done it before. I have like, I was, I'm still insecure, but I was so insecure for a while that I put on this facade of being something that I wasn't for a long time because I wasn't comfortable with who I was. And by the way, that was exhausting. Absolutely. So, yeah, you know, it's, and, and by the way, you just realize that even when you do that, the relationships become so surface and, and they're, they're just not meaningful at all. And so I, I've been guilty of that for a long period of my life, for sure. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I think there's a lot of people who can um, identify in that regard. And I feel like it is true. It's, there's such freedom when we can just accept our uniqueness and we can just be right in that place. And I feel like it gives freedom to the people around us too, because then they don't feel like they have to be some, some perfect thing that they know they're not. Totally agree with you, for sure. I remember like when I finally, like when I started working with this leadership coach, that was my big thing was like, I was, when I first started working, I was so, I wanted to prove to my dad that I could be successful because I struggled right. a lot as a kid. I had a lot of issues, um, depressed for a while. Um, I was on, you know, I went from like public to private school from third to fourth. Like the first week I got, I got diagnosed ADD and went on Ritalin, which back then wasn't like that common. And I was like, thought something was wrong with me. And then I, I got in, I got in a good amount of trouble, you know, in that, those high school kind of drinking years. Um, and I really needed to prove to my dad that I could be successful. So that was kind of my thing. And I worked so hard because that fear of failure and was not thoughtful about the wake of chaos I was leaving behind me. Um, and so, you know, there was just during that period of time, I, I was so focused on being something that I wasn't that, you know, A, it burned a lot of bridges. B, it was not sustainable. Acting from a place of fear and scarcity versus love and abundance. I mean, that just, that's not a 50 year strategy, right? You, you can't do that. Um, and by the way, it's not, it's a horrible leadership trait. You know, talk about getting people to follow you, coming from a place of fear and scarcity where you act irrational and when things don't go your way, you know, you go crazy. That's, that's like the opposite of the person that you really want to be. So I, it took me, you know, working with this leadership coach to really figure out like, holy shit, first of all, let's define what success is. And the first thing I learned was that if you make it about the money, it's not going to work out for you ever, ever. And if you make it about, you know, principles that are important to you, a value system instead of who you want to be, 
and you are disciplined and living in integrity in that, the money is always going to follow that. It's the people that are like, I'm doing this for money, never going to work out, ever. That's one of the things I always look at when we interview people now is, you know, is this, is this about the money for people? If it is, I mean, I am, you know, I'll run as far as I can away from those types of people because at the end of the day, bad decisions and bad results will always end up coming from that. So it took me a while to realize that, um, you know, I was good enough and that I was successful in my own definition to like make that transfer of fear and scarcity to love and abundance. And oh, by the way, at the same time that was happening, all of a sudden I started building these like amazing relationships that I had never had in my life before. It was just completely different. And so I saw, I saw it all kind of running on this congruent path and realized, you know, the importance of authenticity and being vulnerable and being grounded. Um, that was really, you know, made a big difference in my life business wise, but also, you know, in my personal life as well with all of my relationships. Oh my gosh, there's so much good stuff in what you just shared with us. And I appreciate you just being so open. Um, you know, it is, it's, it's an interesting, even in the time of COVID and all of that, that there's that fear and scarcity um, sort of, you know, I don't even want to say mindset, but kind of swirling around that, that people are operating from. Um, and then you also, it's very clear to see the people who are operating from a place of love and abundance. And so it's, um, you, you've shared a lot with us that I, I think we can take um, with us. And, and that's kind of part of my goal is I love to hear the stories and then watch for opportunities that we can take something from your story and apply it to our own um, situations and mindsets and see growth and opportunity. And so thank you again for that. Um, you know, I want to know a little bit more. So in 2010, you made your transition to Denver. And what, I mean, how did that happen? How did you come to Denver? Was that in the so books like or planned? That it was like, oh, I researched and studied Denver and the, the demographics were so strong and I knew it was going to go on this massive run. That's just bullshit. I met my wife in LA. Um, we got married in 09. We got pregnant within the year. And I said to her, we're not raising a family in LA. Let's be near one of our families. She uh, is fourth generation Denver. Um, and so it was either Denver or Boston. And I gave her the choice and she chose Denver, uh, which was complete luck. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I just, at that point, I was ready to be an entrepreneur and have my own business. I was still working for the guy in New York in real estate. Um, I was just ready. So I didn't really care where I moved. I wanted her to be happy. She's got an amazing family. So an amazing support system, which was very important to us. Family is an important value. And we're about to have a child and she had two sisters with three kids each and her parents were great and all live nearby. So, uh, yeah, she wanted to move here and we did that. And that was just, I had no idea what was going to play out here. I mean, I didn't, I hadn't heard what Cherry Creek was. I had no clue what Cherry Creek was. And I had no idea what, what was going to happen on the rest of our stuff before the path ever was going to take. That's pure 100% luck. Well, I mean, there's definitely some talent and some opportunity in the mix there too, but, um, but I appreciate your, your humility and your perspective on it. I, I'd love for you to tell us a little more for people who maybe don't know, and most people probably do, but um, just a little bit about the story of Cherry Creek and sort of how that has unfolded um, from your perspective. Sure. So um, when I moved here, uh, I literally had no money. And so my father-in-law had an office in Cherry Creek and gave me an office within his office to use for free, which was amazing. And that's where BMC was born out of. Um, but just going every day, um, walking around Cherry Creek, a light bulb went off pretty qu quickly for me where, um, take a step back, 
the seven years I was in LA, by happenstance, my office was in Beverly Hills. Uh, the first two years at UBS and the second five years, a friend had an office that I rented in, in Beverly Hills, which again was just kind of luck and circumstance. But, you know, I spent every day, six days a week in Beverly Hills walking around and I, and, and my first deal was in Beverly Hills and then we tracked a lot of things happening there. So we understood the market very, very well. And when I moved and started walking about Cherry Creek, I was kind of like, what am I, like, this feels very much like an old Beverly Hills about to take off. But what am I missing? Why is no one taking advantage of this? Um, and then when, when I really just dug into the numbers and taking it just aside, for me, where I've gotten really lucky is where we've looked at numbers and then we you look at a set of data. And I think one of the keys is how do you extrapolate out a story that you can tell? At the end of the day, we're really we're raising capital. We're, we're in the storytelling business. Um, and so creating that story that A, makes sense, B, ties to the data and numbers and is compelling, right? A vision. You're, you're selling your vision. And so when we just looked at the demographics, the barriers to entry, um and you know um some of the other attributes of cherry creek and what was happening in and around it it was like okay you know there's something going on here that we just either were idiots or people were asleep on or i don't know what it was but it, it was just so obvious to us now that my my inexperience and naiveness helped me in that situation right <laughs> from Beverly Hills, i saw something that no one else did um again that was like just naiveness and an experience that we saw and we said look we have conviction in this and we're going to go for it and the first deal was steel creek which was like and, and by the way every deal had like a, a story and i can list them off to you so quick steel creek um luxury apartments had not been built in cherry creek for 30 years main and main amazing views done halcyon jw marriott had a monopoly in cherry creek north and a higher rev part of the four seasons downtown we're breaking that shit up we're gonna hire the person sage who actually owned and operated the jw Marriott to be our partner to understand everything they didn't do well what we could do better moxie um everyone that came and do business in cherry creek was getting pushed out because they couldn't afford to stay at jw and now halcyon they were going to all the stuff in glendale let's build a cheaper or the same exact price and stuff in glendale but in cherry creek north with a better experience that was a no-brainer um, and then the office building came to us because we needed a new office space. One of our partners did. We knew there was massive demand for boutique office space, did that. And then St. Paul collection was just all the stuff. We made so many mistakes on Steel Creek, even though it was successful for us financially, which was the market, making us look a lot smarter than we were. There's a big component to all of that for us. Um, you know, we made so many mistakes that we tracked and we, we knew where the opportunity in the market was and no one else did. And that that's where St. Paul came from. So everything kind of had a story and we started to build information and data that no one else had because no one else was doing it at the time. And we got really lucky. We built good relationships. Every single thing we bought was a relationship. It wasn't about outbidding people. It was building the foundation of trust that we were going to do exactly what we said and get it done. And I will tell you that a majority of the landowners that we ended up doing something with ended up partnering with us and becoming part of the deal, not just selling us the land. So yeah, we went all in and, and focused on, you know, building those relationships and executing. And, you know, we've said to ourselves, okay, how do we find Cherry Creek? And by the way, I don't think we can. It's, it, 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 I, you know, I think it's going to be really, really tough. And it just shows how lucky we are. We were to fall into the whole Cherry Creek opportunity. I mean, it was like, that was a lucky one for sure. 
Well, you've done really cool stuff there. And I mean, if you, if the listeners have not gone and seen some of those hotels, stayed there and experienced the dining that you have, you didn't mention some of the restaurants that have come in since you've kind of opened this, this Cherry Creek up. Um, I definitely encourage you to go. It's, it's very impressive, Matt. And it's made a huge impact on just our, the economy in that area. And for, for those of us that don't even live in Cherry Creek who drive to that area to actually see some of the things there and participate in some of the things that happen there. So, look, uh, first of all, thank you. That's really kind of you to say that. Look, we, we've been um, extraordinarily lucky that everything we've done has worked, but the, the market up until today literally has been at our back. It's, it, it's covered up every, it, it's important for people to know that. Like we look a lot smarter than we are, when you start in 2010 at the bottom of the market and the market does nothing like this, you got to work really hard to fuck some shit up. I mean, you really <laughs> have to work hard at that. So like, it made us look a lot smarter and, and we had this tailwind the entire time. That's number one. Number two is we've had some amazing partners, like, you know, the operator of the Halcyon Hotel, um, you know, the operator on our partner in Quality Italian, the operator out of Chattanooga on the Moxie, you know, bringing in the Bilbo K folks and partnering with them, bringing in the Matsuhisa people, out of out of Aspen. I mean, we we've just aligned ourselves with some incredible people that are like best in practice at what they do. That again have made us look good uh, and look smart. But the reality is, they're the ones on the ground every day executing and really the secret sauce behind making a lot of the stuff work. So I think at the end of the day, it comes down to people. You can build a building. Anyone actually can figure out how to build a building. I promise you that. I'm not like an engineer type at all. I built Steel Creek, which was a hundred million dollar building. And I had never completed a Lego set before that. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'd never done anything before. And we built that thing in 16 months. And I just surrounded myself with really people that were 10 times better and smarter than I was. Uh, and just tried to lead and create an environment where I get the best out of them. At the end of the day, every single project comes out of the people, whether yeah. it's, it's the pre-development, actual construction process, the pre-opening process, executing on the lease up or the, operating the hotel, the restaurants. It's about amazing people. You can build the most beautiful restaurant hotel in the world, but if you have a bunch of shitheads in there that can't operate it, don't know what they're doing, and don't understand how to build a culture, it's worthless. It's, it's empty and meaningless and won't, won't, won't be successful. So, you know, it's fun that you can do this whole bricks and mortar thing that you can look at, touch and feel, but the key over and over and over again, I'm telling you, is like getting great people from, and it starts at the top where you have to have amazing leadership. It's GM of the hotel, GM of the restaurant, um, and just people that, um, you know, A, buy into the vision, buy into the mission, the why you're doing it every single day, live the values, and, and are passionate about what they do. And that's, um, I think people sometimes lose sight of that in real estate because it's so focused on the design and the bricks and the mortar and the structural and stuff like that. But you can't bring these buildings to life without people. Yeah, that's huge. It's interesting that you said that because, um, you know, I was on a, a webinar, go figure, uh, the other day and it was a number of different builders from all different kind of parts of the building industry, from residential, single family to, you know, multifamily, mixed use stuff. And it was interesting how the resounding kind of piece that kept coming out and the theme and all of the questions, no matter how the panel was talking, ended up being relationships. And just how key, especially in challenging times, um, you know, it's big and just getting things done. But then when challenging times come and uncertain times come, then even more we lean on those relationships. No, I, I mean, look, obviously, look, you see people's true colors when people are challenged when there's a conflict. I, I actually view conflict as a positive. I encourage conflict at BMC. 
because I know that it's an opportunity to build a relationship. If you and I just go out and have a beer once a quarter and shoot the shit, okay, we're friends, but that's not a real relationship. But if you and I have a real problem, uh, a real conflict, and if I sit down and I'm a total ass, and you're just like, oh, this guy's awful. Like, get away. Like, I don't want to be involved. But if it's like, holy shit, this guy sat down, you know, tabled the conflict, worked through it, was focused on a productive solution, and I learned a lot about him in that process and vice versa. I get to learn you, you the same thing. Like, holy shit, like, that's the foundation of a, rela of a relationship, right? Have, have you read um, Five Dysfunctions of a Team? By, no, um, I haven't read that. My mom was just telling me about that, though. It's an amazing book, but it basically has, like, this triangle and you know the foundation of any relationship is really about team building right is trust yeah and the second most important foundation is um conflict and then it's commitment and then it's accountability and then results at the top of the pyramid there but trust and conflict you know you're never going to trust me unless we have an issue and you see how i really behave right you're just not and yeah. so you know, in the good times everyone's kind of got a smile on their face like you don't really the true character doesn't get tested that's why I think this is such an amazing opportunity right now. I think the gifts that COVID is presenting to us in a couple of years, we're all going to look back and say that was a lot better than, than what it kind of appeared to be because, you know, I get to see the true colors of every single one of my teammates, employees, partners, everything. And it's like, holy shit, I got real clarity who I want to hitch my wagon to and who I don't want to. And I see who people step up because like I was saying earlier, I want to have a company that is either all A players or people who can be developed into A players right there's room for both and you get to see that now and people that a believe in the mission the vision and the values and when people have their backs against the walls the behavior is going to be a tell whether or not they're the right fit or not so that's what i think one of the gifts is throughout this experience is you get to really see that in a quick way to know who the right people are in your organization and who aren't absolutely and i think it's an opportunity for ourselves to do some self-reflection like when do we really like are we willing to stand up in the face of adversity and be flexible and pivot like you know i think it's a good a good snapshot of where we all are on some of that stuff totally i agree so i'm curious then matt what's next for you for cherry creek so i think the last six weeks um i've been really focused on leading the team Right now, um, obviously, you know, we've been over communicating with our team, sending out kind of weekly communications, doing a town hall with everyone on Zoom every other week. I'm really focused on making sure people feel supported through this. I mean, I, I can tell you, I, I feel so blessed, honored, and grateful. Our team has stepped up. I mean, you know, we, we own and operate 6,500 units in Denver, mostly C-class. The people, workforce housing, the people who have unfortunately been impacted the most out of everyone. I mean. They really have gotten the shit out of the stick. It, it, it is so sad to see. Um, and so we've had to rewrite every single uh, SOP, standard operating procedure that we have, all new systems, all new processes to really focus on the safety and health of our, of our residents and our employees. Because during this crisis, there is nothing more important than safety. Safety comes first. And by the way, just a side note, the amount of emails I get now from all these like tech and, and, and SAS, you know, I'm not a tech guy, by the way, emails just hammering us. By the way, I will never do business with those people. <laughs> time of crisis, they're focused on fucking selling me their product right now. It is insanity how short-sighted that is, right? It's crazy. Even for us, like, we're not, our focus isn't hammering people to pay their rent. And trust me, we've got massive obligations with all of our lenders. It's how do we, you know, we create a whole new 
umbrella under our company called BLDG Cares. Our management company is called BLDG Management. BLDG Cares, I mean, all the support and resources and giving back to the community. We set up a community service uh, opportunity team within BMC that's presenting to the executive team uh, weekly now on ways that we can help our community. Now it is a time for safety, community service, and then also I, you know, I focus on structure with our team of like, look, you gotta go to work. I'm sorry, we're all working from our homes. We're not allowing people in the office, we're taking it really seriously, but you have to have structure in order to keep your sanity in my mind, like a routine. Um, and so I've been really focused on the team and being in the moment uh, and being the best leader that I can and how I can grow and then reflections on how, what things we've learned throughout this process that we can carry forward. Um, obviously we've got a lot of assets that we're in the process of stabilizing right now. I think we're in pretty good shape. I and mean, obviously we had to close Halcyon. Moxie's still open, but it's, I mean, it's doing nothing. Uh, so we're negotiating with lenders there and then all of our apartment buildings. And then the restaurants, I mean, that was one of the hardest days when our restaurants let go and, and the hotels, 300, I mean, that was, that was horrible. That was just uh, made me sick to do that. Um, so really focused on, A, how do we focus on our people and our team, keep the core intact, maintain the current assets, get that really in a great position. And I do feel that, that we, we are very close to getting there. Um, and then kind of seeing where the opportunity is. Um, and I don't know where it's going to be. I mean, I think there's so much uncertainty out there today. Um, and there's so many things that can happen that that'll define where we're going to go. That it's just, it's impossible to have like a strategy today and look too far in the future. Like my message to my team is show up every day, set your attention to your absolute best, focus on what you can control. We're going to figure this shit out. Um, and I think that's really resonated with people. And I'm like, don't get too crazy about all the shit in the future and what's going to happen because none of us know. Um, and then the only other thing that, that I think Cherry Creek wise is, um, so are you familiar with something called Soho House? Yeah. So my brother is building Soho House down in Austin, Texas in a project called Music Lane on South Congress. We tried to get Soho House to come to Denver and they're not going to come um, because it's not really like their demographic. They're focused on like the creatives only. I could never get in a Soho House actually. <laughs> it's really the creatives only. And they don't think right now Denver's market is deep enough to have a big enough club for them, which, which may be right. So we hired the ex-head of uh, global membership from SOAS for nine years, and she is helping us um, build like a world-class social club. And we've consulted with a bunch around the country that have already opened up. Soho houses, the Battery in San Francisco, Fittler in Philadelphia, the Quinn in Boston, um, and really uh, put together an amazing team there. So we opened that up, I think, March 15th, if we don't get shut down on construction, and it's going to be so that's the old, uh, the old Weber Grill and the old in at Cherry Creek. So yeah, whole construction thing. It'll be sixty-three hotel rooms, seven restaurants and bars, and, and, and what I hope to be an amazing social club, um, just like kind of Soho House, but Denver's local, little more grounded version of that. So we're hiring our team right now. I think we've we've got some amazing people. That is super exciting. I think that's going to change the social landscape of Denver's whole. By the way, that's not about Cherry Creek. You will not see one piece of the branding talk about Cherry Creek there. That's going to be Denver's social club. It just happens to be in Cherry Creek. Um, so I'm really excited about that because we need nightlife. We need a bunch of cool stuff there uh, that we're bringing in. We need that to really help uh, Cherry Creek continue to evolve. We leased the old flower shop right behind the Cricket, which is right next to the Inn at Cherry Creek, and we're actually building a bar there. Cool. Um, partner with a local restaurateur who I think is, is one of the best guys in town. Uh, and so we've created this really, really cool, fun, 
concept, hoping to open it up August 15th. Um, we just started abating asbestos and demo still waiting for the building permit. Uh, but we're doing that ourselves with, with him and his team. And so again, that's really exciting. For me, Cherry Creek is just missing the social aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, which I think, you know, we can bring some of the nightlife and, and the social club have tons of cultural events, music, art, food, wine, tons of educational events, tons of philanthropic events, a uh, handful of social events. It'll be really be an amazing place for the Denver community to connect and build relationships, but not like relationships like, oh, I, I you know, I want to solicit you for to be an investor or, but it's like genuinely being able to connect with people that you otherwise probably wouldn't be able to. And because we've kind of screened and vetted people based on a value system, you know, they're not there to take advantage of you or, or any other ulterior motive. It's like, I genuinely want to connect and get to know different types of people outside of my kind of sphere of influence and, and my, my community. So um, I think those two things will be a big deal for, for Cherry Creek and bringing just more energy, more people there. And I'm really excited about it. It's pioneer and we're taking a risk, but it's one of those things where, um, you know, I have massive conviction behind. So, and then we, we broke ground this week on uh, another office building, but uh, I'm not really allowed to say this. So, uh, but, you know, we got, got one of the best gyms, I think, in the world to sign a lease there. So we're going to do a 35,000 square foot amazing gym there. One of the, probably the most well-known fitness brand in the world. Um, and so I'm excited about that because I think that'll bring, again, more people to Cherry Creek. Um, it's definitely going to become like the health and wellness and fitness, I think, capital of Denver itself. Um, so I think those two things are are really exciting for Cherry Creek and going to bring it to another dynamic on top of the restaurants and the hotels. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about that. But we gotta we gotta get through the next couple months here and make sure we continue to execute and and, and again, most importantly, keep our teams you know healthy and safe. That 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 is more important than anything else right now. That trumps everything for us. Oh my gosh, that's so exciting. And yeah, you're right. I mean, right now we've got to get through the the issue at hand and kind of get on the other side of this COVID stuff. But um, I can hear the excitement and the passion in your voice about what's coming to Cherry Creek. And that's super fun. Um, you know, it is, it's that visionary piece of what you do that is the aspect maybe you don't give yourself enough credit for. But, um, you know, it's it's not all luck. There's definitely visionary and, and willingness to be a trailblazer and a pioneer, which that takes real guts. Um, and so I commend you for that. But I, um, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, I'd love to know, is there any kind of like book or anything that you're reading um, that you, or have read that you would like to recommend? Yeah, I have um, four or five books that I make everyone read uh, in our company. So one is Good to Great by okay. Jim Collins. Um, you know, the, the hedgehog concept, I think, is, is one of the most important things. You know, um, if you think about a triangle and the three tips, one is what are you passionate about? What are you gifted at doing? And, and what's your economic driver? Making sure you're doing some of those three things, I think really increases your chances of success. And then having that, the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal, um, I think is really important. And obviously um, the flywheel of what they do, you know, that continuous circle that builds momentum. Once you understand that and how it can apply to your business, it sets up an amazing framework to help you make decisions. So that book is amazing. Um, second one is uh, seven, ha uh, seven Habits of Highly Effective Leaders. Um, that is by, um, I always mix up Covey and Lencioni. I think that one's by Covey, uh, Stephen Covey. And that one's great, but just like seven amazing habits of, of highly effective people. Um, 
th that book and, and Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Lencioni, um, those two, and again, I, I mix up those two with Covey and Lencioni, but those two books are like the foundation of all the work I do with my leadership coach over and over and over again. So like I've read them, but I've also talked about them every other week for the last five years. Um, another great one, I think, again, if you're in an operating business, um, uh, the goal is, is, is a great book, just like fundamental. I, I was forced to read it in, in college. Um, I think it's by a guy named Eliyahu Goldratt, but it's, I mean, that's, that's the best book from an operations quality control standpoint. Um, it's a story too, which is really great. Uh, and then the E-Myth is awesome, um, you know, by Gerber. I think it's so important, but, um, you know, how to start a business, but just the important things you have to do. So those five books, um, the fundamental principles and the five of them together give an amazing framework for starting a business and like, you know, in, in people that I've, I'm not coaching anyone like formally, but people that I try and help, I'm like, have to read these books and then we have to talk about them and figure out how it applies to your business. And I see a lot of light bulbs go off in people's head when they read it. Um, it's been really, really helpful. Helpful, And they've been around for a while and it's like proven stuff. So um, th those are the five that um, have been most helpful to me in terms of the principles in running the business. Awesome. Well, we will have those in the show notes as well as your contact information. And Matt, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today. Um, I, are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave us with? No, I think what you're doing is really amazing. This is really cool. I think, you know, I know people have asked you before if you've had success. I think success is the fact that you're just doing this is amazing. Uh, and so I applaud you. And I know um, how hard you work at relationships and what you're doing here uh, and trying to help people with that. You're just, you're living into your values. And, and I applaud that. That's really amazing. And so I'm honored that you even considered having me on this. I mean that. Thank you so much. And I hope people get something out of this. That That's my hope. And can learn something you created some value so thank you for having me and uh yeah i think this was great i'm, I'm really psyched that you're doing this uh well thank you that's a total honor um coming from you and i really appreciate it so i hope to have you back again sometime again we'll have all your contact information in the show notes and hopefully we'll be able to get back together in cherry creek here soon i hope so great all right thanks so much matt that's all for this episode of Social Capital Expert. Please visit socialcapitalexpert.com for show notes, additional episodes, and to see who will be visiting us next on the show. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming Social Capital Mixers. These are events where we can connect in person to build social capital. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to having you join us for the next episode.